The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com slash guardian. If they ask me, I could write a book. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. This week we're out and about investigating a trio of remarkable women who we follow into the most intimate corners of their writing lives. Sunday, June the 1st, 1941. I am still a virgin, but unless fate interferes with our third set of arrangements, I shan't be this time next week. We join Simon Garfield and Cathy Rensenbrink as they chat about the romantic journals of Jean Lucy Pratt. And for the Sherlock fans among you, the voice you just heard there is the actor Louise Brearley, who reads out entries from Jean's diaries for us. Another Jean, Jean Gross, speaks with Alex Clark about her late daughter Kate Gross's book, Late Fragments, Everything I Wanted to Tell You About This Marvellous Life, based on a blog she wrote while she was dying from cancer. But we start with Edna O'Brien, whose first novel in a decade, The Little Red Chairs, has been hailed as her masterpiece by no less a person than Philip Roth. It's the story of a Balkan war criminal who washes up in a little village on the west coast of Ireland, and of Fidelma, whose life gets tangled inexorably in his web. This sweeping epic addresses one of the darkest moral questions of our times. What happens when evildoers feel no responsibility? Edna O'Brien was joined by Alex Clark at a Guardian Live event in London. She begins by talking about the journey of her writing across 55 years, starting with The Country Girls, which scandalised Ireland when it was published in 1960. How have her themes changed over time? I could write a preface on how we met So the world would never I wrote at first, and I was glad to, although glad sounds self-congratulatory. I wrote about girls, Baba and Case, at first bursting out of their conditions, out of their gym frocks, out of anything, to get to the city, to live. And for a while I wrote mostly about women, because in my upbringing, I knew I mingled, if I could use such a word, more with women than men. And in that time, I was born in 1930, so that by the time I began, so to speak, to be a bit over-observant, I think, I was very aware of women's lives, married women, women who longed to be married, women who were jilted, women who had phantom pregnancies, women who had, unfortunately, the wrong pregnant, etc. So I had, if you like, very lucky access to all sorts of secrets just by being there. And I once wrote a book called, a short, long short story, called A Scandalous Woman. And I was taken to task, as I have been, 
uh, ongoingly for the last 55 years for writing it because it was about a beautiful woman. It said, um, all the women in our village were lovely, but one of them was beautiful. And this was a beautiful girl who came to, as James Joyce put it first, we feel, then we fall. In short, she fell. She fell and became pregnant and so on. And it was her journey and having to marry, of course, and her parents' shock in this house where the fiancé was brought, the unwilling fiancé was brought. And the end of that story says, ours indeed was a land of shame for women, a land of throttle, sacrificial, it has many words. And I was taken to task, both in my own country, for depicting something that was uh, thought to be untrue or unhinged or hysterical or, you know, those words. In fact, it wasn't. It belonged to that time and that place and was not unique to that place. So I wrote about women mostly and forgive the old chestnut, love, the love object. And for a time that was welcomed and then some very, if you like, angry feminists got very cross with me as if uh, saying I was not on the side of women. Because you mean... Because I wrote about pain, women in pain. And you were depicting them in relation to their love affair. And the whole so-called commandment would be that women didn't feel pain or suffer. Well, uh, they do and so do men. So it it was something... To be a writer and to remain a writer, you have to be aware of what is said about you, but not fall down under it. So that was that period of of love, and these stories uh, take an awful lot of, of, not just diligence, you have have to live these stories of these people. In my own country, they would very much have liked if I would have written nice, approving things. Well, I don't, and I didn't. (laughs) And one of my first pieces of advice, I was a young girl working in a chemist shop, but obsessed with writing and wanting to write and thinking if I met a writer, I'd be a writer. You you'd know. come to Dublin to, to Dublin. write, I came haven't you? To Dublin. You'd left County Clare, you'd come to Dublin to be with writers, to be a well, writer. Well, that was the, more the intention than the reality. No, I was born in co- the farm in County Clare, and that was where everything first hit me. Nature, wind, rain, bog, snow, primroses, trees. It was all so vivid. It's all so vivid, and beautiful in a kind of wild way. And then I went to a convent, which was all uh, wax, uh, floor wax, smell of wax, and candles and nuns, mother, mother, I am coming home to Jesus and to thee. It was rather gentrified, but very religious, both very religious. And then, but my parents um, 
in systems. I went to work in a chemist shop or pharmacy, as they are now called, and that meant really <laughs> slavery. You worked for 12 hours a day, every day, except Sunday, you worked for five. And I earned less than Charles Dickens earned in the blacking factory. <laughs> Very proud to mention this. I earned seven and six a week and went to lectures at night. My energy would seem to have been rather excessive, if not to say prodigal, because I also wrote. And I wrote foolish things. I wrote things about skies and, uh, oh, they were so young <laughs> and they were naive, but they were full of the longing to write. And how did they feel to you when you were writing them? What did you Oh, I was very excited. I thought they were the bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs> because I was writing some, making some little world that wasn't the chemist shop, wasn't going to lectures at night, wasn't wobbling on a bicycle. There was something other. Now, there is a lot in this book that is not directly within your experience that you have gone out and thought your way into and imagined your way into, isn't there? Well, I, I hope there is. I, more and more, I want, to, I want to extend myself a bit. Not out of simply ambition. Of course, I have ambition. But as I think it is in Julius Caesar, ambition should be made of sterner stuff. My ambition was to be a witness through language, through literature, to some of the incalculably awful things that I see and hear on television every night and in news broadcasts. And I wanted to make a human story and, if you like, an intimate story with that theme. The evil done and the evil doer not made responsible or not even feeling responsible. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was just like the theme. So I had a great piece of luck. One day they were making a film about my life for BBC Four. And the director, while we were waiting for the camera to roll, said to me, Tolstoy said there are only two great stories in the world. I said, what are they? He said, a man on a journey, i.e. Hamlet, or stranger comes to town, Gary Coop, High Noon, a lot of other examples. And at that moment, I thought it was prompted by events in history, fairly recent history. Yeah. I am going to bring a war criminal a wanted war criminal to Ireland, to a remote part of Ireland, where all the community gets to meet him and appraise him and fall in love with him, etc. And that was, I knew when I had that idea. It was as simple as that, that It was as simple, idea. but as convincing for me as that. And it's, it's interesting about fiction. It can escalate, it can be, have elements of myth even in it, must have in fact, not just you know a story, I got up that morning and I'm too boring, but it has to, for its veracity, both for the writer and the reader it has to be rooted in a place there's a beautiful line that Yeats said about his daughter, 
May she live like a green laurel, rooted in one dear perpetual place. Well, this isn't dear, it might be perpetual. So what I decided, and some people know what they're going to write from, you know, they have the book plotted Mm. in the mind, and that's valid, and I respect it. It's not my own method. My own method is to start. And nearly always, the first line or two or three is my stepping stone. And I won't know when I'm writing, like I write for five or six or seven hours, and uh, I won't know, I'll only dimly know what I'm going to do tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. Because if I knew it all, I couldn't make the journey of 80 or 85,000 words, my own age, in fact, I couldn't make the journey with the same... Uh, when I say shudder, it's not frightens others, fear in it, but with the same excitement. Mm. So I have to... It's a very strange... It has to be discovery. Thing. It has to be discovering, and you have to be... Without vanity have to be interested in it. It has to grip you, because it's not going to grip anyone else if it doesn't grip you. Every page in a book is a little story, and we must never rule out the, the wonder and the marvel of story, because one could give the facts in 300 days, so and so people died that morning, somebody was hanged and put down, that's fact, but you have to be with the girl who hung herself, the kind of rope, who took her down, what happened then. And that's why research is very, very uh, helpful and more than that. It's rich. It's a rich um, journey, but it's very exacting and exhausting. It's also about more than just establishing the material details, isn't it? To turn yeah. something from facts into story, into as story. you have done, exactly. is more than just marshalling well, you have a to, collection of You details. have to make a kind of magic, then, mm. of that it's readable, you know? How? Well, that's the language, isn't it? That is what language does. Uh, why does one love King Lear? It's a troubling story from beginning to end, and yet every line of it is engraved in one's... That's why, and again, not enough attention, in my opinion, in the modern world, both among writers and those who call themselves critics to to write about uh, fiction and things, the attention to the language is often overlooked. I read reviews of books which give you the plot. You can tell the plot in three lines. It's how it's told. That is where the spell is. Nabokov said, and he said a lot of cross things, like women couldn't write, and Thomas Mann, that's a bit of a large statement, women, all women, except for Jane Austen, all women and Thomas Mann could not write, Nabokov said. So it's very sweeping. But he did say a very marvelous thing. It's in his book, uh, Lectures on Literature. And he says, what do we ask for a book when we read it? He was speaking of fiction. And he listed the obvious things. Um... One was story, one was 
knowledge, one was education, one was calculated, but he said, what makes a book lasting, what makes us want to reread a book, is the enchantment that it wreaks. And enchantment is not glossing the awful things. Enchantment isn't like putting a magic wand over, in my case, this story, because then it would be fake. But it's the enchantment of wanting, even though uh, awful, and almost as some very good critics have pointed out, the awful uh, things that have to be said in this book, the experience of the violation of a woman by three former disenchanted soldiers, adherers to the leaders who didn't get the spoils when peace came, didn't get the cigarettes and black market and diesel and the money. So I could not call that scene uh, in any way enchanting, but the way, only way I could for myself and then my ideal reader, must be you, for my <laughs> ideal reader would be to make that, no matter how gruesome it is, to make it both in all its detail and yet you don't close the book. You have always said, you know, that from way back words were somehow sacred to you, by which I take to me you do not just mean important. You do not just mean that they had a certain weight. You meant they were something else. Language was so important it needed to be treated in a very particular way. I, I think so. You see, I think, I don't know much about physics, or atoms, but words of their own accord, single words, a a group of words put together in a very considered but flawless way, have an energy that is quite inexplicable and miraculous. And that is what happens, that in exchange between writer and reader, that the reader if the language is good enough and eerily good, I mean, if it just steals into the other person's consciousness, the reader is almost writing the book while also reading it. Because mm-hmm. it's not like banal sentences. So it's a, very, it's a very magic thing. And I did say the word sacred. I think literature, or the literature that I love, and that I go back to and back to, and that I would be, not only bereft without, I think I would be, I would go mad if I couldn't read and hopefully also write. I do believe that that kind of literature, I think of Chekhov or Joyce or Garcia Marquez, for instance, I'm thinking of modern writers as well, not many, but certainly he would be there, J.M. Coetze, whose book Disgrace was my greatest model for Mm. writing. I I read it probably four times. Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I mean, the mystery of courts, the man with such a dark heart, and yet he's riveting. Edmund O'Brien there speaking at a Guardian Live event with Alex Clark. 
Her novel, The Little Red Chairs, is out now from Faber. Next, we turn from the heart of darkness to stories filled with unexpected light. Kate Gross was a young woman whose successful and happy life was turned upside down when she was diagnosed with what became terminal colon cancer. True to character, she decided to turn her personal journey into a written one, blogging about her experience preparing for the afterwards with wry humour, intelligent observation and devastating honesty. That blog became a book, Late Fragments, which she saw at proof stage just a few weeks before she died on Christmas Day 2014. Her mother, Jean Gross, spoke with Alex Clark about a woman who was wired for happiness and how this happiness imbued all her writing. Love letters straight from your heart. Kate's book came out after her death on Christmas Day last year. And it started life as a blog, didn't it, after she was diagnosed with advanced colon cancer? Yes, it did. Um, Kate wouldn't normally have been a, a great blogger, but her husband, Billy, is a technological early adopter, and he um, had already started two blogs. Funnily, as she says in her book, um, his hadn't had a wide audience because they were about how to use Excel spreadsheets. But anyway, <laughs> she, um, he told her how, so she did it. And I think she did it because she felt a bit alone and lonely, and it was a way of connecting with the outside. It was a way, um, in all our family, if, we, if we've got... We write things down. It helps us think them through. It helps them get some control over them. So she wanted to write. So started as a blog, and then the blog got a really lovely response. A lot of people started to say, oh, you can write well. And that gave her the confidence to make it into a book. Well, she didn't make it into a book. The book is not a collection of blogs. It's very different. No, that's right. I yeah. mean, she added greatly to it, she didn't did, she? And yeah. took it in all sorts yeah. of different other directions. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that she wanted to write about in the, in the book. I think she wanted to write about how in the face of terrible things happening to you, you can still be happy and about how important it, it is to find wonder in the everyday world and to um, to be in the moment and not be too busy. I think she'd felt all her life so far she'd been terribly busy with um, children and work and, and life and what she calls stuff. And then having cancer made her stop and really look at the world again. And I think she wanted to communicate to people the importance that we all do that all the time. She described it in a way as sort of stepping off that treadmill, didn't she? Uh, and obviously she had been immensely busy, as you say. She'd worked in politics for years. Um, she'd worked with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And then she'd headed up um, a charity working, supporting African countries with, with administration and governance. And obviously that then stopped abruptly when she, was, when she became ill and had her, her diagnosis. Um, and she just had to try to find a different way to, to communicate what she wanted to about life, didn't she? She did, and she, she had a lot of time to think. And so she thought about the wonder in the everyday. She thought about friendship, so she wrote about what her friends have meant to her. She thought about being a mother um, interestingly, she thought and wrote about love, about her relationship with her husband. She hadn't written about that initially in her blogs because it was quite private. But 
it was a big gap when she turned it in the, the, the her ideas into a book. Uh, there was this huge gap, this central thing in her life, her relationship with with Billy, and so she checked it out with him and wrote the most lovely thing about how she loved him and how their relationship grew. Um, she wrote about work, so it, it's a book arranged around themes, and of course it's written for her, for her children. Yes, it is written with this other entire purpose in mind, isn't it? To be a document for them to read. I mean, they're five years old at the minute, aren't they? Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, so obviously they are, they're not reading that work at the minute and it, it wouldn't mean very much to them in the same way, but it will do in the future. Now, to write something with that in mind is a phenomenally challenging thing to do, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, I guess she had to imagine them as teenagers. I think she imagined, and I think she's right, that there'll be a point they they want to know about the, the missing bit of their life, their mother. What was she like? What did she think? What did she care about? How much she loved them? And they will want to explore. Uh, so I think she had that gift of putting herself in that place and thinking, what do they need to know about me? And then she wrote herself as a whole person, as if she's creating a life on the page. But So she is writing for them, but she's also tongue-in-cheek, very funny. So it's interesting. They'll read it when they're sort of in their 20s, in their 30s, I think, and they'll recognize that voice of a, of a young adult as well. It, mm. It's not a serious, not a serious book, and yet it is a very serious book. It's both, it's both at once. But I think that gift of thinking, what will they... When they pick this up, what will they, what will they need to know? And turning that into words was, was a big feat of the imagination. Yes, it's a very imaginative book. I mean, she also goes back in time, doesn't she? Because she remembers the times that she had growing up in what she calls the original Foursquare. Yeah. Um, her life with you uh, and her father and her sister. Um, and it's a sort of uh, a real remembrance of those things and also a kind of celebration of the fact that in Extremis, you all, of course, became very close once again. It is, but I, I think it's very, very interesting that um, the way things pass down through families, the way that traditions, little sayings, uh, the things you love, the books you love, they get passed down, don't they? A history, a shared history. And I think in going back to her childhood, she wanted to keep that thread going for Oscar and Isaac when they're grown up so that um, there's a continuity. So by telling them about a lot of the things she did and loved in her childhood, they'll find echoes with or they'll do or they'll tell their children about. And I think that's what, why we're so happy to have the book because it does provide that the chain is not broken. One of the things that she writes about uh, a lot in the book is her love of reading and of writing. She wanted to be a writer. Um, but telling people to go back and make sure that they make time to read the books in the books that they loved in childhood and to find new books. I mean, that was, that's a really strong part of the book, isn't it? It is. Uh, she was passionate about reading from uh, when she was a child, I remember. She would just devour books. She would pick one up and by lunchtime, it was over. She'd read it. I don't know how she read so fast. And she, wanted, she wants us all to continue to do that, even when we're so busy with life and emails and all of parenting and all those things. So... I am ploughing through Middlemarch now, which I've never read before, because she said I should. <laughs> and how are you finding it? Uh, I don't think I've quite got into it, because I, the trouble is I'm still very busy, especially helping to look after the grandchildren. And so 
you need to create chunks of your life when you set aside for reading. I think that's the lesson, and I haven't quite managed that. So I'm picking it up at bed, and for middle March, I think you need something more sustained and solid time to yes. get into it. Yes, it's a, it's a sort of at least a kind of 50 pages a day sort of book, I think so, yeah. yeah. But, but Kate gave us at the back of Late Fragments, there's a her favourite books, a bibliography of the influences, mm. and so many of people have said since reading Late Fragments, right, we're working our way through those, the ones we haven't read, and they're really, really well worth it. I think she'd picked on some of the most wonderful poetry and novels uh, and non-fiction that there could be. So all the ones I haven't read, that's my goal to have a go. You've mentioned there, that, you know, the responses that you're getting, and I know that's been an enormous part of, of, of the publication of this book uh, and, of course, the blog too, but, I mean, you've really had a, a phenomenal response, haven't you? We have so many letters and, and so many emails and uh, people have said what the book has made them do from the, the almost universal response. You know, I've gone back and hugged my family tighter. Um, everybody who reads it just realises the value of what they've got in their family and their relationships and, and their friends. So they, they focused on uh, renewing those bonds. Uh, some people are a wonderful woman who herself has terminal cancer said she was now going to write her own story uh, because she thought if Kate can do it I can do it too but I think most of all the response we've had is from people who said they've read a part of Kate's book that is about chasing down your happiness it's about going back finding the things that really make you happy perhaps there were things in childhood that you stopped doing and doing them again Uh, and so a friend of Kate used to sing as a as a child as a young girl and although she's terribly terribly busy she'd now joined a choir and she's singing um, another remembers that she used to love drawing so she went to a museum bought a box of pencils and sat and sketched a sculpture that she saw so it is about finding Kate wrote about swimming that was one of the things that she loved swimming in wild places so um, that is what people have said they've gone and done the things they used to do but have forgotten to do in the busyness of everyday life you wrote very movingly indeed very shortly after kate had died describing her death Uh, and you said then if anything good is to come from losing kate it will be the book and the effect that it has on all who read it and i think that that seems to to still be holding true all these months later doesn't it i think so um you do, when someone you love dies, you want something to come out of it. That's why all those marvellous people set up charities and raise money. And uh, it gives some meaning to what otherwise is a dreadful and bizarre event. So for us, that book is that meaning, part of that meaning. And to know that people are reading it, when it's perfect strangers, when I hear some of my friends say, oh, I was just talking to someone who didn't know I was connected to Kate and they told me about this book. So that's really a kind of magic when you know that the word is spreading. Um, I'm still waiting to see someone sitting on London Underground reading it and I shall be really happy when that, <laughs> when that happens. Love letters straight from your Jean Gross speaking to Alex Clark, and Kate Gross's book Late Fragments is out now from HarperCollins. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. 
Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. Dear reader, if you're reading this in 50 years' time, please don't think ill of me when I say... Anyone who's ever written a diary could have written those words. Few of us would believe our words would actually then be edited, read and published in a 700-page book. I personally shudder at the thought. But that's what happened to Jean Lucy Pratt, whose diaries were discovered by Simon Garfield. Simon came together with memoirist and journalist Cathy Redsenbrink to talk about the edited journals A Notable Woman at Foyle's Bookshop in London. They were joined by the actress Louise Brearley, who read out excerpts of the diary entries. She starts with the very first one. Saturday, April the 18th, 1925, aged 15. I have decided to write a journal. I mean to go on writing this for years and years, and it'll be awfully amusing to read over later. We're going to Torquay next week. I feel so thrilled. We start on Tuesday and drive all the way down in our own car. Daddy has only just learnt to drive. It's a Fiat by make. I'm going to learn to drive it when I'm 16. My name is Simon Garfield. Um, I'm the uh, editor of A Notable Woman, uh, the romantic journals of Jean Lucy Pratt. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink enthusiast for Jean Lucy Pratt. <laughs> Simon, let's start with how you discovered Jean Lucy Pratt. Yes, it was 12 years ago. Um, I was editing some journals at the Mass Observation Archive and I was looking for writers who really had written through the war and directly after the, the, the war. And I came across a huge amount of great writers, one of whom was um, a woman called Jean Lucy Pratt. We couldn't use her real name. It was an agreement that the writers at Math Observation, um, which I should say maybe was pretty much the first sort of social survey that was set up in the late 30s to find out what um, in quotes, ordinary people thought about their lives. Um, and she, she was one of the contributors um, and was clearly a great writer. So I included her in this book. Uh, then there were two more books, edited, uh, edited diaries as well during the war. Uh, she featured in all of them. Uh, and that was that, I thought. Um, but people said, gosh, is there anything more? Um, and I said, no, I don't think there is. But then I heard from her niece, who was then in her 70s, uh, and said, did you know that Jean also kept journals through her life? So I was, I was down there within, down in Taunton in about three hours. Um, and, uh, and, and I just, I, I couldn't believe what, what I was reading. Terrific uh, read, incredibly honest, very, very insightful. Um, but it's, it's taken pretty much um, 11 years now to, uh, to, to, to get them into print for, 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 reasons that are all they're non-problematic really there wasn't any sort of I thought oh maybe maybe some terrible skeletons in the cupboard but I just think her niece felt she wanted to hang on to them for a little bit and then two years ago she said okay the, the time is now right and what happened with the name? I mean, you presumably you can't tell us her name. No, her real name is Jean Lucy Pratt. Um, but the name that we used uh, in the, uh, the Mass Observation Journals was um, just something, something I made up, which is Maggie Joy Blunt. Uh, it had the same amount of syllables. And uh, I just thought, um, 
that that was um, that that sort of summed her up. She was blunt in 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 the way she she wrote. Sunday, January the 12th, 1930. There is a dream. An exquisite little house set down on the borders of Cornwall and Devon, near the sea. Maybe a husband. Maybe a husband at sea. Maybe a husband is difficult. Divorce. Perhaps death. I should like two children, a boy and a girl, with two years difference in their ages. Most of the time, they are at boarding school. Her voice is, she's a diarist with a voice that we, we don't often hear. Um, what have your observations been, finding a voice like that? I think it's wonderful to read something that it just does feel she reaches to you across the years. So she might be writing in 1940, say. Uh, one of the things I found fascinating was she talks about her periods, which women didn't talk publicly about their periods in 1940. So there's, no, there's just no information about that. It's not in novels that were written at the time, as far as I know, because it would have been unacceptable to do that. And I found that fascinating. She has a very compelling voice. She's a very natural writer. One of the amazing things when you look at the original diaries, which Simon has showed me one, is that it does bring it home again, how... Um, how unedited they were. She, you know, she was writing longhand in notebooks and doesn't often pause to cross something out, really. And that was obviously, that was the way people created then, whereas probably now everybody's typing things and you get a different sort of product, I think, even if you are only writing for yourself. It's a different experience writing into a notebook than it would be, say, keeping it on a laptop and amassing Word documents. And also she never intended... Um, for what she wrote to be read, you know. So people say, okay, well, we don't keep journals now, but we keep blogs. But that's obviously, you know, to be read instantly, and it's all, it's, it's, it's all, uh, blogs tend to be about, don't they, they're, you know, sort of making a point or, or, or making yourself feel great. Um, and uh, with her, it was often the opposite. Um, there's a lot of kind of terrible tales about her relationships with, uh, with men, and it's very, very self effacing as well which you, you don't see uh, that often then only towards the end did she um, actually think that her work would would actually you know should see the light, light of day at the beginning there's a note which says you know um, these mustn't be read these are secret diaries they mustn't be read by anyone until after I'm dead but then towards the end of her life she oddly addresses the reader or the potential reader saying dear reader if you're reading this in 50 years time please don't think ill of me when I say um, and that's a slightly spooky thing to read as an uh, you know as an editor looking at it for, for the first time Monday June 2nd I have the inferiority complex the hump and indigestion yesterday Joan Hughes beat me six love six love in the open singles I know she's good but damn it all not a single game. The whole world is a dark and murky place and I am afraid I shall never rise to the heights I dream of. Afraid that I shall settle down to an irritating existence of domesticity and the narrow little life of the average woman. But I shall always have the chance to write. I have two more tournaments to play yet and I must beat Elsie Warden. Do you write a diary? No, I don't really. I write so much and I read so much and it sort of 
you know, it's that classic thing by the end of the day. And she almost always wrote at the end of the uh, at the end of the evening. Uh, she didn't have the box set. Um, she uh, she only had a very very old cranky record player, which I don't think she hardly played. Uh, the radio was her main um, companion, so she 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 had a lot more more time. Um, uh, inevitably, though, I mean, it's an interesting question because you, you know I I would say as most a lot of people who would keep journals may say, oh gosh, you know who's going to be interested in what I'm reading? You know, it's just it's just sort of nonsense. It's just what comes into my head, or it's just what happened, you know, in my day. And but actually, of course, we're fascinated because you get all that detail that you don't get in the big history books. And you get all the, you know, kind of all the self-effacing, um, uh, you know, honesty and, 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 and self-analysis as, as well. That, you know, now if she edited it, she would be, well, I sort of hesitate to say it really, but I think she'd be sort of blushing all the time. And she, she would think, oh, no, I can't put that in. Oh, that makes me look so bad. And, oh, God, I got that wrong, didn't I? You know, so it's interesting because... You know, when editing these things, and the book is, I don't know, 700 pages long, the diet, there were 45 journals and lots of loose-leaf paper and about a, over, well over a million words. And I did ask myself often, you know, um, what are the important things here for me and what do I think were the important things for her? So, you know, as an editor, one has all these dilemmas about um, I want to portray her in an honest light uh, but also in quite a favourable light, because one's aware that, um, you know, as a reader, you really want to, um, you know, I want people to like her, and I want people to read more. Fortunately, I think, there's enough of a mixture of things that paint her, I think, in a good light, uh, maybe in not so favourable light, things she got right when she's looking to the future, things she got, got wrong. Uh, the, the things that, that I'm really excited about, I think, in, in the book and in her writing, is how forward-looking she was, as a woman, and there's a real sense that she had a kind of grasp that things were changing for women. Um, maybe it helped that she, you know, she, she didn't get married, that she could live all her life independently, and that wasn't her wish originally. She thought, all I need is, you know, a man and kids and I'll be happy, but she came to realize, actually, that wasn't, you know, the core of happiness. And so I think she was, you know, a, a kind of early feminist. But I, th I think you can probably trace that back to when, when, when she was, you know, 15, when she began writing. She was very, very strong and very independent. There's someone to tell me where the men are Need somebody to love Sunday, November the 25th, 1934. Let me try then once more to get this straight. What are, for me, the most important things in life? First, living, making friends, knowing and understanding as many different types of people as possible without destroying my own integrity, taking a constructive, intelligent interest in all contemporary art and literature, reading and knowing enough of the past to give the present its full value, traveling, not touring, which will involve a more serious study of languages, clothes, health and exercise. Friendship is perhaps the most important thing. Love will come out of friendship, or is part of friendship. Love in its purest and non-physical form. We want a new word for love. Love is so associated with sexual passion, it's difficult to think of it without. Sexual passion is necessary and usually inevitable, but it's only of relatively minor importance. We have sentimentally confused it with love. And secondly, writing. If I am reduced to scrubbing steps and drinking gin, 
I shall still keep a journal. Writing is so much a part of me that even if I never get anything published and have to earn my living in other ways, I shall continue in private, living and writing. I desire to live fully only in order to write fully. One day I'll find you here or elsewhere. I lock you up in my heart. I dream about the way that she writes. She has a very particular and determined voice. How does that? How does it change across the book? One of the interesting things about it is that it's a it's a woman's life. It's the whole of a woman's life in a fairly substantive portrait of the 20th century as well. I think she grows increasingly true to herself, really. She matures, but there is that there is, there is an arrow that runs through it of feeling that the essential her is there all along. It's fascinating to read, I think, as a writer, because so much of writing, I think, at the moment, is just about how you overcome the self-doubt long enough to get some words on the page. And her her continual struggle between feeling ambitious, committed, feeling talented, feeling that she has a vision, she has a voice, she has a purpose, she has things to share, she has a contribution to make to the world, is continually undercut and challenged by her sense of self-doubt. And should she be trying to do this at all? And certainly I feel, I mean, I, maybe it is just me. <laughs> but when I read the diaries, I did slightly feel like somebody could, you know, unlock my secret diaries and find a lot of the same stuff, that, that to and fro. Um, and she was very, I think, certainly, she liked to make comments about how she viewed the world. So I think she was very definitely writing them for herself, but always with, I think it's a bit difficult when you are a writer, I want to be one, you somehow don't turn off the notion of an invisible audience, an invisible readership. So even though you don't, even though you may think, I'm never going to show this to someone, you slightly can't help yourself think, oh, but if somebody did read it, I wouldn't want them to think it was rubbish. So that's why it's so satisfying to read. You feel like, and I'm sure it's Simon's editing as well, but you feel like you are in good hands. You've, you're being brought through a, a narrative. They are her, I mean, her private thoughts are wonderful. I love all the stuff about her attempts, often disastrous, to lose her virginity. It's just spectacular. Mm. And of course, the wonderful tension of the book is at the times when you're thinking, or she's thinking, you know, will she survive the war? Will she get lose her virginity and we know she survives the war because we, we you know we know how the war ends and we know there's lots of diaries to come but whether or not she loses her virginity is a, you know there's much more drama really and uncertainty and readerly tension in that um but also what i just completely love about it is that it's the details it's how much she spends on cigarettes it's the fact that she has a bottle of sherry and gin kept in for odd occasions this all comes in a list on what she spends her money on um there's the stuff actually that I think when you look back, maybe possibly at your own diaries, I always think like, oh, I don't want to listen to this nonsense about whether or not you should try to write a book. Tell me what the colour of the sofa is. Tell me what tell me what stuff at the shop costs. Tell me all these things that you didn't write down at the time because you thought you'd remember them forever and don't know. But that's what I want to know now. I want to know how it smells, how it feels, what it looks like. And I think that's what she does all the way through. Sunday, June the 1st, 1941. I am still a virgin, but unless fate interferes with our third set of arrangements, I shan't be this time next week. Oh God, if I am to burn for this as St. Paul threatens me, then I'll burn. An irresistible physical attraction between a hungry, passionate virgin and an oversexed, neurotic, incomprehensible man. We have lost the Battle of Crete with very heavy losses. Clothes are to be rationed. 
Susanna Tresillian there with Simon Garfield, Cathy Rensenbrick and Louise Brearley. A notable woman, the romantic journals of Jean Lucy Pratt, is published by Canongate. And that's all from us for this week. If you missed our Forest Fables series of short stories last week, do check them out. They're a quartet of brand new stories written to celebrate Britain's woodland by Alan Garner, Ali Smith, Evie Wilde and Alec Finlay. We'll be back next week with an interview with the award-winning Irish writer Kevin Barry. Until then, from me, Claire Armitstead, and my producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye. Then the world discovers that as my book ends, how to make two lovers of friends. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.